Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm delighted to have Johnny B. Truant with me on the Creative Giant Show today. This is Charlie Gilkey, your host. Thanks for joining us. Johnny B. Truant is a speaker, co-host of the top-rated self-publishing podcast, co-author of the number one marketing bestseller, Write, Publish, Repeat, The No-Luck Guide to Self-Publishing Success, and the author of well over two million words of popular fiction. Million. That's a lot of words. Whew. All right. Johnny, along with his writing partner, Sean Platt, founder of publisher Sterling & Stone with six distinct publishing imprints, and David Wright, number one, the number one horror author of the Yesterday's Gone series, also launched Fiction Unboxed in 2014, a record-setting Kickstarter project in which Johnny and Sean wrote a full-length novel in 30 days. These guys are prolific. Starting without any ideas or genre in front of a live audience sharing every detail of the process, including story meetings, emails, and raw story drafts. Johnny's fiction works mostly co-authored with Sean Plin, or Sean Platt, sorry about that, Sean Platt, include the political sci-fi serial The Beam, the fantasy western mashup Unicorn Western uh, books, the satirical fat vampire series, the literary mind-bender Axis of Aaron, and too many others to count. Don't worry about all these names. We'll link up to them in the show notes so you can keep up with it. These guys produce a lot of stuff. Johnny, Sean, and David host their trend-setting, boundary-pushing podcast every week on YouTube, iTunes, and their two-post daily, two-post daily, cornerstone independent author website at sterlingandstone.net. Johnny and I go way back, and by way back, I mean we were both getting our start at around the same time, and we've done a project or two together. If this is anything like the rest of our jams, it's going to be a blast, and I have no idea where it's going to go. Johnny, thanks so much for the work you do and for being on the show today. Thanks for having me on, Charlie. Um, I realized that when I said, ah, I got my Amazon bio, that's, that's current that uh, I didn't realize you were going to read the whole thing, but man, I sound pretty good there, so that's, that's awesome. It's fun to just... Yeah. Yeah, you do sound pretty good. You know, the whole thing that I was that I was thinking was like, man, I'm gonna have to ask him, how the hell do you guys write so much? So let's just start there. How do you guys write so much? So you're talking about the fiction, yeah? You're talking about the, the two million words. I'm I'm, I'm talking about it all because I mean, let's look at it. You've got the whole fiction unbo- unboxed. You and Sean get this novel done in thirty days and all the errata and process and engagement. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yep. Two million words. You write two posts daily on Sterling and Stone. You got other projects and other books that you're working on simultaneously. So you guys' output is like phenomenal. So what's the secret there? Okay. Well, the 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 fiction. I mean, the, the, uh, let me just knock the blog out of the way first because that's kind of the outlier. Is um, we do run two 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 to three sometimes. It just depends post daily, but. Uh, a lot of them are content that we can queue up in advance. So, for instance, we, we we're just just finishing um, the follow up to Fiction Unboxed called Fiction Unboxed One Point Five, not Two. That's going to be different next year. And so uh, every day, so we were writing the second and third books in the Dream Engine series, which is this the series that contained the original Dream Engine book, which was Fiction Unboxed. And so every day we needed a blog post for that. So that was multiple masters served. We were writing that and we were writing like a little write-up to go to those people. And so that's a blog post. Or we serialize fiction on our blog. Three different things are serialized every week. So that's three, you know, three days a week have one of those. 
And so our like A content, which are what you would normally consider to be our quote, you know, capital B, capital P blog posts, uh, it's really kind of just one. But there's a lot of stuff there. And then we're splitting it between three or four different people, depending on how you work that out. So the, the, that's that. The fiction is just, that's my job. Like, I have many jobs, but the fiction, that's my main thing. It's what I do first thing in the morning. I sit down. I write for typically four hours, and that will add up. Like, if you're a fast writer, you know, if, I, if I'm writing six to 8,000 words a day, um, five days a week, because this is my full-time gig, I, I'm not doing it on the side, um, that adds up. I think that it's, I think it's 6,000 words a day for a five-day week is about 1.5 million words a year, which is what we seem to be hitting on average. Uh, so it's just a lot of doing stuff. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Yeah, no. Well, and here's the funny thing, right? Because I, um, when people come to me and they're like, ah, I can't write and I'm, I'm a slow typist and I can't blog, like, and all those types of things. And you've heard this time and time again, Johnny, right? With, yeah. with what you've done. One of the things I recommend people do is sign up for 750words.com. Right. Because 750words.com is a, it's a web-based service where basically it's a daily journal. And the whole thing is to write 750 words a day. And signing up for that has really revolutionized a lot of people's writing process because it's like morning pages, just a lot easier to keep up mm-hmm. with. But what I use it for and what I, what I work on it with, with, with people is really if you sit down and you just type and you shut off the internal editor and the, and the critic and all those types of things – you would be surprised how quickly you can write. Like I can write 750 words in 15 minutes, like consistently. Just sit down and write it. However, when the critic comes and joins the party, right, then it's like 300 words an hour, right, <laughs> or something like that. And so, you know, when, when, when you look at Johnny's rates, he said 6,000 words over four hours, that's 1,500 words per hour of drafting. Um, well, that sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. I'm not even going to downplay that. Um, and I think it's just, like you said, it's your job and you probably have figured out some ways to really focus on drafting and, and turning the editor off and just getting it out there. And I think that's what collaborative writing might help because, you know, there's somebody on the other end catching your work that might help out with that, right? Well, uh, I, every writer is different and we all have our own strengths. I happen to be a strong first draft writer. And so between Sean and I, that is my primary job. Like I, I do, there are projects that I see again, but the majority of them, I write the first draft and I hand it off and that's it. And I've been told that I produce really clean first draft copy, uh, which is not for everybody. And that's, that's, it's not good. It's not bad. It's just how I am. And so that happens to be something that I'm good at, but other people might write a lot faster and produce crappier rough drafts that then take more time to edit through, or they might write a lot slower, but they're cleaner. And it isn't about how fast you write in terms of like that being good, but I think you need to write fast for you because it gets you out of the way. It, it get like you said, the editor. Like it gets I, for me, it's not get the editor out of the way so I can write fast. It's write fast so that the editor has to get out of the way because he's going to get you know run over. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So let's go back to the beginning, Johnny, because again, I said we started together. You. Let's go all the way back to the real estate days and how you came into. Oh, oh man, I don't even want to go back that far. <laughs> um, so you you got your start um, largely in what we might call more internet marketing stuff, right? Um, and yeah, that makes us both I, want to throw up a little bit because I know we both do, but yeah, I suppose. So tell us kind of how you entered the not the world of writing. Well, hmm, I'll let you tell what whatever part of the story you want to tell. But how'd you enter the online scene? 
Uh, yeah. So basically, I I've always been an entrepreneur. Um, I'm sort of terminally infected with the entrepreneurism virus. Uh, I think we share that in common. Like I just the idea of of working for somebody else is really alien to me. And so um, I'm kind of a squirrel. So I I started. I have a degree in. Um, biochem uh, uh, what is it i forget because it's been so long i guess it's genetics and philosophy like i have those two degrees um ironically i am using them today in a weird way but not directly so i went to grad school for a while started on a phd and then it was like terrible and i said i can't do this i can't do this and i started trying to find other ways to to make money and um one of the ones one of the ways i tried was i was going to invest in real estate because like why not right like that was a good way to do it and um, that didn't turn out very well. And it was right during the big loan bust. And so um, when everything kind of hit the fan, I said, okay, I need to do something. Like it was one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, I'm just going to die here. I have to do something. So I, uh, I started a blog. Like I just, I don't know, people were, people were making money starting blogs. And my blog took several different variants like it was originally supposed to be a humor blog and when I realized I couldn't make any money blogging with humor and AdSense ads then I started um uh I what was I tech tips was next because that was the sort of thing where okay I could blog about tech tips I could install blog blogs because I don't know people didn't know how to start their WordPress blogs and then when I started making some good business there people asked about business so I started talking about business and then when people said, well, I can't start a business because of X, Y, Z personal reason, then I started talking about excuses and motivation. So it was like a, a general move in that direction. But I've always wanted to be a fiction writer. And it just wasn't possible until recently. I forget what your original question was, actually. But it's just always been like, how can I get closer and closer to sort of my, the pure distillation of what I do? And what I do today is a conflagration of all of those things, which is what's so cool about it. Yeah, there's, there's a trend there, and pull out this trend for, for listeners, um, to really riff on Pam's, Pamela Slam's body of work, right? So you've, you've done a good job of, of taking those individual pieces and tying them into some type of cohesive whole, right? So that you're using them in Sterling and Stone in all those different ways. And you, I won't say you hid from your fiction work for a while, right? Because, you know, we're talking the 2007, 2008 timeframe is what Johnny started at the beginning, right? And a lot of the channels of distribution, Amazon and, you know, all this type of stuff did not really exist in the way that they do now. I mean, they kind of did, but you had to be a bit of a rocket scientist and hardcore to figure out how to make it work. But now it's fairly mainstream. And so um, talk to us a little bit about your relationship with your fiction work as you were as you were doing all this sort of business nonfiction stuff. Yeah. OK, so it, it's kind of you to say that I that I maybe hid from it because what I really did was give up. And um, so I, I originally wrote a novel. My first novel took me 12 years to finally see publication. And that's because I wrote it and I microanalyzed it and I edited it and then I'd pull it out of the drawer and I'd edit it again. And I sent off to literary agents like anybody who's an old school writer. And by old school, I mean five years or more. Right. Um, you know, you may have gotten the big writer's market book that's this thick. And then you look through like literary agents and then you send them an email begging. Oh, please, person, you know. I have written this letter in the exact formulaic way that everybody says, will you please deign to see my first chapter? And then they see your first chapter. If they're 
nice and then they reject you. And so after doing that a few hundred times, I said, forget it. Like, even if they accept it, like I'm beginning to realize this isn't going to make me rich anyway. And that's if they accept it. So I just kind of said, okay, I, I can't, I can't do that. I can't make money with that. And so nonfiction was a way to use writing to make a living because, you know, crazy, I wanted to pay my mortgage and stuff. But I always use storytelling. And I was talking about storytelling in marketing. I was talking about um, everything that, that, that we did told a story when we were doing the jam sessions. You know, people learned about whatever we were jamming on, business, but then they also learned about Charlie and Johnny a little bit. And then when I created my blog, it went in all these different nonfiction sorts of directions. But the key was me and my story. And it probably sounds a little conceited to say that people were interested in me, but that, that's the truth. That's personality-based marketing. And so when I was finally able to literally do the fiction, like before I was like, okay, well, I'll tell stories, but I'm really doing this. And when the Kindle self-publishing, the DIY indie movement started, then it was like, oh, I, I can do this. Like when I met Sean and Sean and Dave were really doing it. And I said, I can do this. Let's start a podcast. I'm going to pick your brains and we're going to do this together. And I just, just gung ho. I've always wanted to do it, but the avenues weren't the open. The avenues weren't open. And, you know, the thing about it is, is in context, Johnny, um, he's married to a, you know, his lovely wife and he's got kids and things like that. So they're the pragmatic things at place, right? Like it's one thing to just jump off the cliff and I'm doing it like no matter what. And then there's other like, you know, I still have to bring on some bacon here and all these other ways are actually bringing home the bacon. Right. And so there's all those types of things. And the reason I wanted to show that, Johnny, is because, you know, one, you're a great guy, but you've got this really interesting journey that I think a lot of creative giants find themselves in and where it's like, you know, we have to we have to make money and our thing gets put off. Our thing gets put off for different reasons. Sometimes it is because the technology and the opportunities just aren't aren't ripe yet. Um other times, though, it's our own sort of shadow and, and, you know, things going on where we're like, ah, you know, that I can't do that. Only people like Johnny do that um, or only people like Seth or only people like Charlie. And that's pretty much bullshit, guys. Like people find ways in the, in the oddest of places to, to get their thing done. So um, really check that assumption that you can't. Yeah. And, and um, I, I read, you know, I've read all the posts that you've written about creative giants and stuff. And it was, I mean, you know, in the true Charlie way where you're taking this concept and it's like you can't help but be persuaded at the end because here's Charlie's, you know, 18 point bulletin of exactly how you're, you, you know, you're creative giant. And I, I don't know, like I really re, uh, related to, um, to, to a lot of that stuff. And I think a lot of it comes out of if you're going to, you have to accept yourself as that person before anybody else can. And I remember saying, um, I said this in a nonfiction context years and years ago, just because I was just being, trying to be a funny jackass apparently. And I just said, the only difference, you know, the thing that makes somebody an expert is that they're willing to stand up and say, Hey, I'm an expert. Like you need to know your, you need to know your material, obviously don't be a jerk. But that said, the difference between somebody who knows their material and isn't an expert and somebody who knows their material and does is their willingness to stand up and and raise their hand. And I think that that comes up in creative stuff, maybe even more. Yeah, I think there's two things that come up in creative stuff, right? So one thing is that there's this, 
there's the aesthetic component of things. Like when you're doing some type of art, you want it to look good. You want it to like whatever the standards of that particular art form are, you want it to stand out and, and be remarkable in that way. Mm-hmm. So there's that ability to be an artist in that way, um, which is really important. And then I think there's also this sort of um, more educational or more sort of um, expertise-based point. I don't know if it says expertise-based point for for being an expert, which seems redundant, but you kind of know what I'm saying here, Donnie. There's like you want your art to be a certain way, but you also want to have a certain amount of known talent to you, right? I I used to talk about this between um, there's, there's natural expertise where you actually just know your stuff, and then there's social expertise, which is largely other people think, other people say you know your stuff. You can be a social expert without being a natural expert, and you can be a natural expert without being a social expert, right? And so that, I think that's what comes up for so many people is that um, if you're a fiction writer especially, um, the thing that, that those nerdy things, those nerdy, geeky sort of outlying things that make you you, like that people don't necessarily, they're maybe not mainstream or conventional, that's part of what's going to be your secret sauce for making you a compelling fiction writer at that point, Right. On the nonfiction side, it's that particular perspective that you have that maybe not everybody else has, or even if they have it, you say it a certain way and people listen to it. That's what's going to set you up as an expert there. So it's this weird thing. I actually am making a point here, Donnie. Okay. <laughs> There's this weird thing to where we want people to pick us, to use Seth Godin's language, like pick me. But to be picked, we got to show them like ourself and why, like just show up in our own way, and then we get picked. And I think that's what people get behind in this whole thing, where... They're waiting on somebody to pick them rather than saying, here's what I got, and it's, it's what it is, and I'm going to keep doing it no matter what. And that's what, you know, the point that I'm making here is that's what I liked about seeing this just transition that you've had over the years, especially when you accepted, you know, your fiction path and then started writing some of the more um, Johnny-esque or, you know, um, mind-bending fiction that you've been writing. Like, it's been really good to see that happen, and so it's a good model for anyone who's out there and like, eh. Um, I don't have it. Well, Johnny didn't think he had it in 2009. Turns out he did. Yeah, there. I actually think this is slightly askew from what um, what you were saying, but I, I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway because why not, right? Is um, in terms of voice, like you, you can't help but have your own quirks and stuff. So this is what I was thinking of, and I, I can't remember either of the parties that were. No, I can remember one of them. So it was somebody. It was a, a musician. I can't remember who this was. Um, wanted to he said the day that he found his voice and his name and like he i don't know well-known guy like whoever's somebody's listening to this like why the hell don't you know this guy's name i can't remember it um was the day that he found that was when he stopped trying to sound like van morrison and sounded like himself and so um that's what it is that's what it is is it's like you you do there is an element of having to claim what it is that you do and what you do well um we hop around our genres but some people like, okay, you know, I just I, I tell horror in this unique way, and that's that's what I do. I'm a horror guy, and you know, go for it, embrace it. You you can't try to be somebody else; you can only be you. And I think that that takes a boldness that comes off as bravery. I'm sorry, maybe a stubbornness that comes off as bravery, or a a recognition, or a willingness to leap. And somebody says, wow, that's really brilliant. Look at you with your own unique way of doing things. And it's like, well, I didn't know that I was doing it right, but I did it anyway. And now everybody's giving me praise for it. So yeah. there you go. So what was a, 
a spark or a tipping moment for you along the way of you sort of being to where you are now? Like, you know, it's just a few moments where you're like, mm, I'm definitely in the right place doing the right thing for me. Well, I know what it was that, that really got me going. And that was, um, I already knew Sean. So, uh, Sean Platt and I, uh, share the copy blogger circle and, and you and I do too. And so Sean and I knew each other in that way. Like, Oh, I know that Sean Platt guy, he writes for copy blogger and he knew me as that Johnny B. Truant guy and he writes for copy blogger. And so we started orbiting in the same circles, just like you and me and blog world and South by Southwest and all that. And, um, but so, so Sean was doing this and, and, um, he, so he approached me with an interview for my blog, for my Johnny B. Truant blog, which was my old blog. And he said, Dave and I, David Wright, his other writing partner at the time, uh, still his other writing partner, but at the time his only writing partner, um, are doing this serialized fiction thing on, uh, for, for the Kindle marketplace. And this is what we're doing now. And so we're trying to launch this book. I, I may have gone to him, but whatever. I did an interview for, for my blog about it. And when I started talking to Sean, like this is really kind of to promote him and Dave and their Yesterday's Gone serial. But uh, in true, you know, fashion, when you interview somebody, I'm like, oh, uh, look, I'm going to keep picking your brain for info because I want to know it. And so when it kind of dawned on me that these guys were making fiction work in a business-like way, they had, they had created a business encapsulation of what is generally considered to be a pure art, which is something we've tried to do with today. Um, it made me go, oh, you know, ding, like Sean's a businessman. And I didn't know Dave at the time. Um, but I said, these guys are creatives. They're doing pure fiction. They aren't doing nonfiction. They aren't doing whatever. And they're making money at it. Like that's possible today. And so once that seed got in my head, it was like inception, right? It was like it wouldn't leave. Like the idea was just a virus. And I do tend to leap, much to my wife's chagrin. And so I just kept writing more and more fiction and um, tried to outrun my flagging finances. And uh, so far, so good. You're still outrunning your flagging finances, which is the – which is – Getting getting ahead of my flagging finances, which is nice. So things are starting to accelerate. Yeah, um, that that that's fantastic. So, um, so that was one. So you met sort of Sean Platt. Like, what in your work together, like in Sterling and Stone, has really been some some spark moments for you, and why? Okay, I know another, and that's um, I mentioned. It took me twelve years from start to publication for my first book. My second book, I wrote in a month. And it wasn't like you mentioned fiction unboxed. We wrote a hundred thousand word, like a full length. I have it here actually. So, oh, but you don't have video on the podcast. It's either. gonna be fine. You can hold it up. Okay. He's holding up a book. Okay, well, I'll hold it up for you. Okay, okay. so that's so, our hardback for the Dream Engine. So that's a full on book. And um, the the first book that I did wasn't like that. That's a hundred thousand words, Fat Vampire, which is the, the, my second book, but my first sort of real book in terms of this new model is only 30,000 words. And so I realized that, number one, in modern self-publishing, you don't have the word count restrictions that a traditional publisher would have because they kind of, it's kind of like a, a pay-per-minute you know, phone line or something where, okay, all the expenses in those first words, and then so we need to add more on so we can justify a higher price to recoup what we spent on those first 30,000. So it isn't that way for indie publishing because there's no hard good costs and they don't have to do these huge print runs. So I could have a short book 
And then I could also just have a simple story arc where like this happens, this happens, this happens. I was a pure pantser before. Like I was like, let's see what happens. And sometimes it'll work out and sometimes it doesn't. But the the vampire story was formulaic enough that I knew that. And then by the time I had gotten the second and the third and started working with Sean, it was like, wow, you know, having a loose outline, not a real rigid one, something that will change, that will allow me to move quickly. And now, Sean, that's that's our partnership. Like he creates what we call story beats, which are like a loose outline. And every time I get stuck, then we go back and we talk stuff out. And, you know, I do the first drafts and he does the final drafts. So those iterative improvements over time that like in process. So like I know I'm talking to the guy who can appreciate process. Like we're always refining our process. It's all about systems, not machines, not turning a crank, but how can we refine our creative systems to get the most out of what we have? Those have all been small changes. Yeah, I, I don't talk. Well, actually, I think this is the first time I've actually talked about it publicly. So new content, guys. This doesn't happen often. <laughs> Um, when I'm working with people as creative giants, I, we start thinking about the concept of a can of pineapples, right? Because if we were in a pineapple business and like our job, our business was around getting pineapples in a can, right? And we sold cans of pineapples. We would know a lot about that process. We would know how many pineapples it takes to fit into a can. We would know how long it takes to get there. We know how many cans of pineapples fits into a pallet. We would know a lot about that. The idea that creatives have is that creative work is such that you can't make a can of pineapples. Like you can't, you can't have sort of these planning factors and it's largely not true, right? There are always going to be variables, but again, we know that of, of a certain amount of pineapples that come through, some are going to be ruined, some are going to be the wrong size. Like we would say, okay, there are these variables, but largely speaking, this is how many pineapples it takes to make this many cans of pineapples. And so it's just a different way of thinking about process in, in the sense of you guys, you know, in Sterling and Stone, it's really about shipping those cans of pineapples, i.e. those finished books and things like that. So every way that you go through there and go Kaizen and go work about the process and what are different ways that we can tweak that increases the amount of cans that hit the truck, which increases your revenue totally. So, yeah, I mean... If you're in any type of creative work, please, 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 every time you say, oh, there's no way I can figure out a process to make this work, please push that out the door because it's actually not false. It's not true. There are useful planning factors and baselines that you can use to plan your work. Let me give you a variant on the can of pineapples, Charlie. You feel free to use this. This is your content. All right. It's my content. I stole it. So just in case anybody wants to. Yeah. Because I thought this is where you were going to go when you started talking about we're, we're, we're going to we would know all the things that go into canning pineapple. And so I'm imagining somebody who's like, well, I don't like every time I learn a new skill, I know enough about myself that if I, I if I decide I want to do video editing, like I'm not going to understand that at all. And I have to go through a period of time where I'm like completely and totally overwhelmed. And like I end my day stressed because like I can't figure it out because it's just too much. It's too foreign. And what we notice all the time, because we want to be, um, we want people to, uh, we want to inspire people, but we don't want to intimidate people. And what happens is both. So when we talk about, we have a publishing company, it has six lines, we publish, we, and when I say we, I mean me and Sean, publish 1.5 million words a year. That doesn't even include the other people. Um, People get overwhelmed. They're like, oh, well, they're publishing a blog three times a day. I got to do social media this way. I got to do this. I got to have a podcast. And they, we, we didn't leap from 
from point A to point Z. Like we had, we had to go through B, C, D. And these are small, iterative improvements. We started with, I started with one book and then I wrote a second. And then I learned a little bit on the second and I wrote a third. You, you can't say, we get people all the time. How, I, how can I keep up? You know, you guys are doing so much stuff. You don't have to keep up. Keep up. You have to do a little better for you than you did yesterday. Yeah, and there's another thing, and this this might get into an awkward point. You have to remember that Johnny, Sean, and David are are the three powerhouses that are coming together to create this stuff, and whatever they earn has to be divided by three in different ways, right? And so, if you if you just own your own, can be a third as productive, right? A third as prolific. You're going to make, I mean, all things considered, and there are a lot of variables there, but you're going to come out to about the same point that any one of them is going to be all things considered, right? Unless you have, they have, they have cumulative sort of synergies and things like that. But what I'm saying here is don't compare yourself and a powerhouse team of people that have spent years of building their process because that's never going to pan out. And what they need to do to make their venture successful is a lot different than what you need to do to make your your venture successful. So largely saying, watch your own lane and beat yourself. That's, that's really the point. Yeah. We're, we're outlining, um, a 60 part autoresponder coming up soon. And that's a huge autoresponder series, but it's, there's two people. There's two people who happen to know autoresponders really well. Like that's, you know, that, that, that halves the work or more. I, I, that's totally true. Like you have to say, it's like being a minute. It's like, um, uh, the, 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 what was the book? Re, um, rework, right? It says, go, you know, go, don't go big, go small. And so that's the, the, the same lesson is applicable. It's like, if there's just you like, yeah, you're limited and whatever, but you also don't have as many mouths to feed. So that's true as well. Yeah. You also don't have as many mouths to feed. And I'm sure you guys have learned this along the way. Like you guys jailed from the beginning. And so you got into a partnership where you already jailed with them. Yeah. That's not always the case. Sometimes you join I would a, say it's usually not. Yeah, it's usually not the case. Usually you get into a partnership and then you figure out all the ways you don't jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's also those things to go about. So again, work your own thing. Um, but let's talk about what, what I think is really cool about it is you don't see many joint creative authors and business people making that whole thing work. So what are some of the things that you guys have learned along the way that, that really make you, make you get into a zone and a sweet spot? And the things that have tripped you up. So, just, you know, for people curious about that. Okay, well, I'm going to go after this down the path of you said you don't usually see business and and, um, and creativity come together in the same people and the same. Uh, I'm going to go down that path. So, so let me know if I'm not answering your question in the way you want. Um, and that's that that we do have a fairly unique skill set and not just skill set, but temperament in that um Sean and I, and, and all three of us are very, very creative, but Sean and I in particular are very entrepreneurial. We're very business-minded. Um, we did come out of the, air quotes, internet marketing world. We do understand things like autoresponders. We do understand product funnels. And that gives us a, a unique advantage. And the way that we wrote about this in write, publish, repeat, which you have to enunciate those syllables, as those words as you did, because otherwise people think it's write, publisher, Pete it's not so anyway side note so what we said in that was um you need to be a creative person first you need to be an artist first and a business person second and that's not priority that's uh chronological 
So when you create your, your art, your book, you need to say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to consider whether this topic is hot right now unless I just happen to want to write that too. So like vampires are hot, I'm going to write about vampires, something like that. Like you need to get that business thought out of your head and say what is true to me for my art. Then after you're done, you need to take off the artist hat, stop being so precious to your work and remember that, that is a product and that you need to present it in the right way. So for instance, um, if you write a book uh, that's, that's a, a very specific subgenre of a large genre, you need to make sure that it's in the right category, that you have written a product blurb that will appeal to those ideal readers. You want to ideally say you have a customer avatar. You know that this is the ideal writer that you're, reader that you're writing for and not this other person who might be ancillary. And what we've done is uh, we believe in putting everything into product funnels. So you, you have a first book, which is typically free, and I can go into granular detail on all of this. I'll just give the overview. Um, that's your loss leader, just like in business, just like in marketing. So it's a free product. It's a discounted product, that first book. And then at the end is a call to action to buy an upsell, buy the next one. So we try to arrange everything that way. If it's in series, we're always saying, how does a logical customer flow go from consuming this low friction product at the beginning to, okay, you liked that. Here's a way you can buy the next one. Or here's a way you can get the bundle of several that are finished, which will save you money and convey that value. And so the way I'll wrap this up before letting you interject and say, okay, we'll go off this way or that way, is that we believe that, and I know this is a little sad, but whatever, that if you have two writers and one is an excellent writer and not a very good marketer or a mediocre marketer, and you have another writer who's a good writer but an excellent marketer, the one who's an excellent marketer is probably going to outsell the other one by many factors. It, you have to be a business person. You can't just be an artist. Yeah, you, you took a different route on that one, but it was still a good, it was still a good pathway. Um, you and I. Well, we are on topic for us. For like, us. This is pretty good for us. <laughs> Uh, what he's alluding to is we we did the jam, did Charlie and Johnny jam sessions back in 2010 and 11 or nine and 10. It was somewhere around that time frame. And we used to always go off topic. It's like, I'm going to go on a tangent here. But then we realized that so much of the call was just a tangent anyways that we just stopped saying it. Um, but what we used to talk about, and I think it's true no matter what, is there's this for creative people. There's there's this field of dreams myth, right? They like they make some really good art. That's all it takes. Like they really good art. And it's not. You got to find the people. You got to find the others. You got to think about that marketing. Like, how are you going to find those people? How are you going to tell those people? Because those people are in a marketplace where millions of other things are in, in front of their faces as well. So you can't just like build that field and hope that they come. Because, well, they won't. Um, that's a sad truth. And so that's why the marketer, the, the mediocre writer who's a great marketer, will outsell and outperform the great writer. And, and think about it from this place. It's a cumulative effect. The mediocre writer probably knows that they're mediocre in a certain way, right? Or they're just really cocky, but that's a whole other matter, right? <laughs> they get more sales. They get a little bit of expertise behind their bet. And guess what? They have the resources to hire a better editor. They have the resources to improve their writing and get better at that. Um, they also have the resources to get better at marketing. And so it's frustrating for Mike because I work with a lot of small business and startups and things like that. And unfortunately... A lot of times the person with the most capital wins 
Um, and the trick is, how do you get the capital? And it's really crappy when a, when an inferior product or an inferior team loses largely because they didn't market themselves well and get overtaken by somebody else who just had more money and were able to last longer. So that's the truth of it, guys. The, the truth as spoken by Johnny and Charlie. Boom. <laughs> uh, but let, let's really, I want to pull back to the partnership because this is a, a good thing. And I know we're going to be wrapping up pretty soon. Like what works well with you, um, Sean and Dave? And, and what are the things, the kinks that you guys are still working out with each other? As far as just working partnership. Just as far as partnership, yeah. Okay, yeah. We, we, we've gotten really lucky. So uh, I know that most partnerships do not gel this well. You and I gelled pretty pretty darn well. So that was good. So so I've actually had more good luck than I have bad luck. And and Pace and I were we're in a partnership. Pace Smith and she and I gelled really well. So maybe I'm maybe I'm the good one, right? No. Um, but uh, so so between the three of us, we all have our strengths and we play to our strengths. And it's communication, communication, communication. Um, we don't let anything fester if there's anything at all. So in Sean and I have the closest partnership. I have a closer partnership with Sean than with Dave because he and I write together and we have, we know what our goals are and it's to produce the best work to have fun. We want to have fun. We aren't just about like, let's keep grinding. We, we we're, we're aligned and we know that we're aligned in that, in, in our goals. So having similar goals. And we have dedicated responsibilities. Um, I write the first draft. Uh, Sean, uh, we, we, we discuss like what we're going to do for the project. Sean does our story beats, which is the rough outline. I write the first draft. He does the revisions. And then sometimes I see it again. You know, he handles most of the dashboard stuff. Um, I, there are certain elements of the dashboard stuff I handle. So it's an understanding of what everybody's duties are so that nobody gets surprised and says, oh, well, wait a minute. What the hell? Why am I having to do this today? Um, we have clear de- delineations on how uh, money is split up. And um, I know I can share this, so I'm going to just as a general. Um, we have, uh, so for a given project, if there are two, 80% goes to the writer or writers and 20% goes to the company. And we know that for all for all projects. So if Sean and I write something together, it's 40, 40, 20. We know how the money is spent. We're in agreement on that. Now, Dave and I don't work directly, but we do work together on the podcast, two podcasts. We do um, share the company. We're third equal, you know, we're third, third, third on the company. And so there are decisions there that need to be made about expenses and about podcast topics. But I think that we've all gotten really good at knowing when something is important enough to somebody and less important to us, so we'll back off. Or it's really important to us, but we know that they're just so-so, and so then we'll, we'll step up and say, well, this really matters to me. Um, there are certain things with marketing that Dave is really reticent on. Like, he's known, if you listen to the podcast, he's known as the curmudgeon, and he hesitates on a lot of stuff. Um, just because he, I don't know, he, it's really good hearted. He feels it's sleazy sometimes, not the things we do, but the things that other people do that when Sean and I say, well, what if we did this? He'll, his initial reaction will be like, I don't know, we'll be seen this way. And so our choices are, we either try to work with him and say, well, here's why we feel it's not. And then he'll, he'll come around. Or if it's really important, then we back off. There've been podcast guests that I've wanted and that Sean's wanted. I, there's one in particular I'm thinking of that I can tell you after the, off the air. 
where um, we know Dave would not like that. And so it's like as much as we want that person, we're like, no, you know what? It's more important to Dave. So I think it comes down to general consideration. It's the same sort of rules that would apply in a marriage or a friendship. Um, If you don't have fights with your friends and your partners are your friends, yes, there's money involved, but it's easier if you approach it with that mentality. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things I've seen in partnerships that whenever I form, and I think we did that with the jam sessions before we started, it's like, how are you getting paid? Like, what's the payment cycle? Like, what? how are we spending money? Things like that. Because that is one of those things that can just really corrupt a relationship for stupid reasons. Like, I haven't written Johnny for a long time because I've owed him a little bit of money. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And then I wrote him and it's like, it's not a big deal. But still. Right. It's one of those things. It's like, this was our yeah. agreement. And we fought. He doesn't even remember. And I didn't even remember it. I'm like, I think you're wrong, dude. I think, I don't know. I don't know, but I didn't know. And then it's so it was this funny thing. It was like, I didn't know. And so then it's like, I got to go back and check. But then that, that started some yak shaving. You know, it's like, oh shit, I got to go look through four years of records to figure out what that number was. And then. Yeah, permission to stop worrying about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, 45 minutes later, I'd be like, oh crap, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll do it in three months. Um, and it was not enough money that I would have been worried about <laughs> it in any way. It was, it was like 30 cents. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm bad about that. No, so this is a weird thing about Charlie. So sometimes sometimes I say this. I have a friend, um, my, my best friend from um, high school actually let me borrow some shorts when he was 17. I still have those shorts. And I'm like, I need to get them back to Scott. He can't even wear them. Like, I don't know that he would. I mean, but still, I'm like, I got to get it back to him. I, that's the problem with having an elephant memory sometimes. Um, anyways, um, quick quick question on this. I'm just curious. What do you guys do when one person like says I'm going to do something and they don't? Like, Because that's what I've seen can be a tricky point. Um Well, okay, so I'm going to answer this in a rather meta way, and it's that we know when that will occur and when it won't. So there are times that happens, but um, we know in which situations they're likely to happen because we communicate, because we have a history, and our expectations are built in. So I'm going to tell my story about my friend Rob, who I've told this – I've told this before on the podcast – is Rob – this is – I'm just going to give his first name, not that he would care – um, back in like when I was a teenager, I had this friend named Rob and he, you could count on Rob never, ever being there when you made a, an appointment. So, Hey Rob, I'm going to meet you at two. That's the one, if you wanted to get Rob away from somewhere, cause you're going to plan a surprise party, you'd invite him to it at a time. Like that's how reliable it was. And so I had this decision, do I want to keep being friends with Rob or not? And if I do, then I just need to understand that I, the option that I don't have is to say, I'm going to be friends with Rob and I'm going to be disappointed every single time that happens. Like, I know it's going to happen. Why am I the idiot if I continue to beat myself with it? So there are tendencies like that in our business. Um, not to not to pick on Dave, but we do this publicly anyway and we, we say we, we love you, Dave, but there are sometimes things that that don't get done or he, he's not great at meeting deadlines. He just, because he's an artist, he's an artist. And, um, but we know that Dave doesn't always hit deadlines. We know he hates deadlines. We know that they stress him out. And so when that's the, when we know that it's not a kick when it occurs. So it's not really a failure to meet an expectation because the expectation is that, if that makes any sense. That said there, if, if there are something, if, if I asked Sean to, I can't think of an example, but something that I knew he could do and then he didn't do it. And it wasn't like, oh, my kid was in the hospital or some really like that would be disappointing. But it just I don't know how to answer this other than a circular way to say that we either 
anticipated happening or we know it won't happen. Yeah. Or what what you're hearing is that especially for guys, they have a very commun- they have a lot of proactive communication and they talk about things, mm-hmm. right? And so that that would be the other thing, always in a partnership. Proactive communication, just where things are and, and keeping people in the know. And that's where most partnerships break down, actually. I, I, I actually, I realize I should add one more thing. So the reason that that works with, with my Dave example is because we know that Dave is an excellent artist and producer. That's a prerequisite. Because we have worked with people where they don't get stuff done. But you, it's like downward. There's no forgiveness after a point because... They're just not getting stuff done. Like, I'm not saying you can forget, like, oh, I know that this person is never going to get anything done. Ha, ha, ha. I'm going to work with them anyway. Don't be that idiot. Like, you need to know that the intention is there and that in the end, what you get is worth it for everybody involved. So I just wanted to add that caveat. Good. All right. So two more questions. Okay. What's the most unanticipated challenge that you're facing right now? Uh... Mm, boy, that's a good one. Um, and by good, I mean I don't know the answer to it. Um, challenge. Well, there's the, the ongoing challenge of um, of getting book sales. Man, Charlie, I'm sorry. I don't I don't know how to answer that. We have a million little challenges, but then we just kind of step up and hack at them a little bit. Okay, so I, I have one. Is um, the advertising nut has been really really hard to crack. So I'll give that. We did a, um, a three-book box set called the Indie Author Power Pack with David Gogren and Joanna Penn. And you bought that. Thank you very much. And um, it did great because we had somebody named Phoenix Sullivan running it for us. And Phoenix was like a genius. And she knew everybody. And she could place ads. And she tracked stuff. And, it's just, and she's still doing it. It's amazing. And um, I tried to hire her. Well, do you don't bother because she's not taking new clients. So I tried I tried to hire her and she's, you know, she's like, "Well, I, I thank you very much. I'm very flattered, but it's I'm not doing that." And so um but seeing that made me really aware of how poor we are at it. And we know a few venues where we can buy ads, but we just can't work that magic. And so that has been a nut that we've been very very much trying to crack with limited success, but Hey, iterative improvement. Yeah. Iterative improvement all the way. Okay. Last question. If you could leave our listeners with one thought, one main key takeaway from this um, podcast, what would that be? Uh, that there's no substitute for hard work, which I believe is Thomas Edison. I think, um, I think that's, I think that's who that quote is attributed to. And this is a, if anybody has followed anything else I've done, this is a Johnny, uh, regular thing like this is a trope at this point is um there was a lot of especially a few years ago of kindle gold rush mentality stuff where people would say just take public domain content white label it put it up you know and you're just trying to churn some sort of money machine and and that's just such crap so this is the opposite like if you were to get our book right publish repeat it's the opposite of Kindle Gold Rush. And as fact, we spend a lot of time at the beginning, enough that I pulled some sections out where we're saying how hard it is and that if you're deterred by hard work, you just shouldn't do it. All creative work is like that, but especially indie um, authorship right now is about numbers. It's about math. It's about producing and growing slowly. And you'll go through long periods of time where you won't see any results, even if you're doing everything right and people will lap you and you'll make five sales a month and it sucks and you can't pay your rent if that's all you're doing. And that I promise you that it will be hard. But on the flip side of that, 
it is about math. And um, if you have one book and it sells $5 a month reliably, and you can set the clock. Now, $5, I would hope it can do better than that. But let's just pretend because anybody can get their head around that. Well, that's not zero. And I think that anybody who understands math gets that if you add five up enough times, it doesn't stop getting bigger. So it's just a matter of produce more books, produce more books, keep working. This is a long-term game. And so that's kind of an anti-lesson, but it's also a lesson. I don't know if that counts, but that that's where I would go. I love it. I'd say there's no substitute for hard work. Just like, you know, self-mastery is key, you know, all Boom. those types of things. Boom. So everybody, this is Johnny B. Chewing on the other side of the horn. This is Charlie Gilkey. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Johnny. It's been a wonderful, pod, a wonderful podcast. You can find Johnny at sterlingandstone.net and also the self-publishing podcast. I highly recommend both. I'll link them up in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today, Johnny. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.